Our scripture for this morning comes from the Gospel of John, chapter 19. We will begin reading in verse 28. Hear now the word of God. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now fulfilled, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping, in, stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you've laid him and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabbani, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to my father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. 
Thus ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he lay its eternal truths on our hearts this morning. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, what an amazing and beautiful thing we are reading today. I sense my own inadequacy as a preacher when I look at such a magnificent text. What can we possibly say beyond what you have said that would give you adequate glory today? And so, recognizing our limits, we ask you to grant us your Holy Spirit so that our hearts would respond and we would love you and that we would trust in you by faith. We ask you to help us in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. This morning's passage includes two things together. Uh, It includes the most horrible and the most wonderful thing that ever took place in all of human history, all of them within a hair's breadth of each other, all within a, a short reading of each other. We have both the death of Jesus and we have the resurrection. If you look at the Apostles' Creed, which we recite every other week here at Evergreen, One of the things it says of Jesus is that he was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. Uh, These are historic Christian beliefs. They go all the way back to the moments that we're actually observing here in the text. Um, Neither is optional. His death is not optional. His resurrection is not optional. We, we are not meant to have one and still have the other. We're not meant to have one and reject the other. We don't get to mix and match these beliefs. They go together. They are twins. They exist alongside of each other. The one only makes sense with the other. And as, as I reflected on this thought in anticipation of today, this one phrase continued to resonate with me through my heart and through my mind as I was looking at this text And it's these words that seem to only place us at a moment in time in the passage. It's this phrase in verse 38, after these things, after these things. Think think of this, think of everything before that. Up Up until John says those words, after these things, we have a world of horror before us. But then after these things, all the glory we could possibly imagine after these things. Life and hope for for Jesus because, of course, after these things, he was laid in the grave. After these things, he, he entered into his father's rest. And, of course, after these things, he was raised, as Paul puts it, never to die again, for death no longer has dominion over him. And as verse 38 tells us, everything today and onward happens after these things. Because after these things, the nightmare is over, the evening is past, and in our passage now, the day has dawned. It's just a few simple words, but they are actually filled with a world of hope, aren't they? After these things. So let's just revel in that this morning. Let's look at the before and the after of these things. Uh, Three points modeled around that passage in the Apostles' Creed. Uh, This morning, first, Christ suffered and died. Second, Christ was buried. And then third, Christ rose again. 
So let's just look at this a little more closely. First this morning, Christ suffered and died. One more time, just look at verses, verse 28 to 30 here. It says, After this, knowing that all was now finished, Jesus said, To fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to, its, to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. While there is a universe of weight to this passage, and there are so many things about it that we could pay attention to, let's fixate on two truths this morning when it comes to the suffering of Jesus. The suffering of his death and the completeness of his death. The suffering of his death, the completeness of his death. Uh, It does not take great imagination to understand that Jesus suffered immensely in his death. Uh, You need only read the passage and you see, even before this, all of the things that he experienced. He was beaten, he was mocked, he was whipped by the soldiers, of course. Um, One of the things we did in our family devotions this week was I asked my, my children, tell me some of the things that happened to Jesus before he was crucified. And of all of them, the thing that upset them the most was that he had his beard pulled out. And for some reason, the thought of having your beard pulled out seemed to them so real and visceral and unpleasant. And we don't even usually think of it as one of the things that happened to Jesus. He was spit on. Uh, If you've ever been spit upon, you know it is one of the most insulting, degrading things that someone can do to a person. All of these things happened to Jesus, not just one thing. But there was nothing in the ancient world to rival crucifixion as a form of death. Uh, I've been reading books on ancient Rome, and one of the things that just comes through resoundingly over and over and over again is the genuine horror of crucifixion and the Romans' own hatred of it and their own despising of this art form. The, The physical reality of suspending a person off of the ground by his arms, meant that even apart from blood loss, the person crucified would have been physically suffocating due to being suspended for hours on end from his arms. And the result of this would have been a buildup of fluid in the lungs. It would have been something similar to, to drowning. It would have resembled what pneumonia does to a person as the lungs fill with fluid and find a person increasingly unable to take complete breaths. And so the death is a slow and agonizing death. This also meant that every word that a person spoke after being crucified would have to come slowly and painfully. Anything that he said would take incredible effort and will. This is why you see Jesus giving his speeches to the women about who should really be pitied as he's walking to the cross, but not after. You don't hear lengthy sermons from Jesus on the cross. Everything we hear from Jesus is short, pithy sayings. Uh, You don't hear long sermons because once he's on the cross, he's incapable of giving long messages to anyone. And what this means is that Jesus also has hands that are are pierced and feet that are pierced, which means that every every time he wants to take a breath, what does he do? He has to press down on the feet. He has to pull up on the hands, likely both at the same time. 
Romans had become experts at this form of torture. They had been doing it already for hundreds of years by the time Jesus was murdered. And Romans were agreed on this, that crucifixion was so horrible that they actually outlawed it against their own citizens. You know, one of the reasons you want to become a Roman citizen is because you know if you're a Roman citizen that you may be killed, but you'll never be crucified. If you were a Roman citizen who had committed even the worst capital crime, you were banned from being crucified. Uh, No matter how serious your crime was, if you were actually a Roman citizen, you had the good fortune of knowing you would be decapitated. Uh, That's what happens to the Apostle Paul, right? The Apostle Paul is a Roman citizen, and he is executed by decapitation. He's not crucified. Crucifixion was so awful that it was only saved for enemies of the state, rebellious slaves, and yes, for people whose crimes were so horrible that they required a public torture and humiliation to teach a lesson to everyone who ever saw it. It's hard to know everything that went through the heads of the Jewish observers as they saw such a great and gentle rabbi hanging there, naked, humiliated, strung up for all to see with nothing to hide from anyone. We know that some mocked, some jeered, and others wailed and wept at the sight. Whether all who witnessed it understood It would have been, objectively speaking, truly the saddest, most horrible thing any human being has ever laid eyes on in all of human history. There is no way, either in art or in film or in human imagination, to do justice to or rightly portray the nightmarish suffering that the rabbi Jesus experienced in his death. As Paul put it in a very different context, no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor heart imagined. There is just no way to take what has happened and sufficiently get it across in any way, humanly speaking. All we can really do is bear witness to the truth and and hang our heads in shame that this really happened, knowing that it happened because of our sin. But we also need to see the completeness of Jesus' death. Um, You know, I mentioned before how difficult it was to breathe when someone was crucified. When a person is crucified, they wouldn't die generally of blood loss. They would die of suffocation. And so uh, this helps us, again, as I mentioned, understand why we don't get lengthy sermons from Jesus on the cross. Because it took everything he had simply to draw a breath. And if he decides to speak, he's wasting that air. And yet we know that Jesus spoke from the cross a few times. Once he spoke to address the Apostle John to please take care of his mother. Another time he speaks of his thirst. But his final words, which we see here in verse 30, are the very simple phrase. He just says these words. And we don't know how loudly he would have been able to say them. But he says these words, it is finished. There is this moment as Jesus realizing he is now dying. When he sees and understands that his suffering has ended. The work that he came to do has been completed. 
over and over again, the Gospels, in the, throughout the Gospels, Jesus tell his disciples this is coming, that he had to suffer many things, that he had to be killed. He told them that he had to suffer many things and be rejected. And yet in this moment, he says, it is finished. Nothing more future. It is here now. The thing that he has been working to achieve has done, has, been ha- has happened. Leo the Great summarized it this way. He says, the scriptures are fulfilled. There is nothing more to endure from these raging people. I have endured all that I foretold I should suffer. The mysteries of weakness are completed. Let the proofs of power be produced. And so he bowed the head and yielded up his spirit and gave that body that would be raised again on the third day, the rest of peaceful slumber. I love what what, uh, St. Augustine says about Jesus' death. He points to this, this passage in verse 30 where it says he gave up his spirit. And the point Augustine makes here is that his spirit cannot be taken from him. Instead, he yields his spirit. He gives up his spirit. And this is what Augustine says. He says, his death was an act of great power. He suffered like a sheep, but he died like a lion, showing his power and his mercy and his weakness all at once. When you look at the death of Jesus, you are seeing his power and his weakness simultaneously. Why would he give up his spirit in this moment? Because at this moment, he knows that everything necessary to secure the redemption of his people has been completed. There is nothing left to be done. God's wrath is satisfied. No more suffering to experience on their behalf. No further misery or humiliation needed so that his people could go free. He had experienced the hell of suffering on the cross, the very hell that his own people deserved. And in that moment, there was nothing more to be done but to bow his head and give up his spirit. Why? Because of the completeness of his death. The the book of Hebrews reminds us that Jesus experienced suffering, that Jesus walked this earth. He, He knew what it was to hurt. He knew what it was to experience trouble. And because of that, the author of Hebrews says, Jesus sympathizes with you. There is no hurt that you experience which Jesus cannot say, I have felt that. I've tasted of that. I know what that is. He knew what it was to be oppressed. He knew what it was to be abused. Whatever you have been through, he has experienced it as well. And because of everything that happened up until this moment, God's word tells us that he knows what it's like and he sympathizes with you because of the suffering, because of the completeness of his suffering. It wasn't just physical. His suffering was was spiritual too. I I think it's fair to say we've all felt loneliness and loss of one form or another. We have all perhaps to one degree or another experienced our own dark night of the soul. Maybe we're going through it right now. In Jesus' own soul, he tasted the same abandonment and loneliness 
that all of us actually deserve because of our sin, the very thing that we have tastes of right now in our lives and experiences of now in our lives, and the scripture tells us that Jesus drank that cup completely down. And this is why Jesus could so definitively say, it is finished. Second, this morning, we should notice that not only did Christ suffer, but he was buried. I, I know this seems like a technical thing. It's maybe you even wonder why even mention it. Why even include it in the Apostles' Creed to begin with? Of course he was buried. Everyone who dies is buried. Um, it's actually very important, though, because here's what, here's what his burial means. His burial reminds us that we are talking about an actual historical event. Something must be done with the body. This is a man who lived for 30 plus years. He, he has now died. Something must be done with him. The burial of Jesus reminds us that he was not a phantom, that he wasn't a dream, that he wasn't a wish, that he was an actual person with a real physical body who lived among real people in real space, in real time. People saw him. People learned from him. People remembered from him. Something must be done with him. The Heidelberg Catechism asks why the importance of of Jesus' burial. And it says his burial testified that he had really died. His death is historical. It happens in space and time. Now, we know this, that in the past, and almost certainly currently, there are unbelieving scholars, um, John Dominic Cross and Martin Hangel among them, who argue that Jesus was not buried at all, but he was rather thrown into a shallow grave, that he wasn't given a proper burial at all, but rather his body was torn apart by wild dogs. The thing is, they have zero evidence for this. It is all raw speculation. More importantly, there are good reasons, even apart from the direct evidence of the Gospels, to believe that the Jews would have been motivated to bury Jesus' body. Uh, There are just a few historical reasons for this. I'll just mention them in passing. One was that the Jews had a very strong concern that the dead needed to be buried properly, whether they were a righteous person or an unrighteous person. They should be buried. And in going along with that, sort of a second reason why, they had a strong desire to avoid defiling the land. And if you left a body left unburied, it defiled the land. And so there would have been a lot of reasons why his body wouldn't have simply been thrown into an open grave. And so for these reasons... In addition to the fact that the testimony of Scripture tells us that of his body, uh, we know that it is important for us to acknowledge that Jesus was, in fact, buried. This is in our confession for a reason, because it's important for us to know he was buried. He was a real man. He had a real body, and he truly died. The burial also is important because it means that, to return to our sort of our theme here this morning, it means that after these things... After his sufferings, after his trials, after his pain, after his words, it is finished. They were followed immediately by a type of rest as his body was laid into the ground. He was buried. It's almost incredible to think, but in a fallen world, death and burial are so normal. It doesn't mean that death and burial are good, but it is normal. Ever since the fall of man, Jesus was buried. Most normal thing in the world. Buried like countless people before him had been. Buried like every patriarch who had ever come before. Buried like Adam. Buried like Noah. Buried like Abraham. 
buried like Moses, buried like David, buried like Solomon, buried like every king who had ever lived, buried like his earthly father, Joseph. Even the death and burial of human beings is something that Jesus has tasted. I have conducted a number of funerals since becoming a pastor, and funerals are interesting because they are at once deeply bitter and lonely experiences to walk to the gravesite, to see that casket there, to see the family approaching the casket, wishing that this wasn't happening right now, missing the person who is being buried. And then standing at the head of that casket, as the, as the pastor is wont to do, and to say those words, ashes to ashes, dust to dust, it is something that has been said over countless people as they have been laid into the ground. We don't think of it as a normal thing, but it is so normal. And every time we bury a loved one, we should remember that even this is a place where Jesus has walked before. He buried his friends, and yes, even he was buried. This sometimes leads to the question, maybe you thought of it this morning as I was reading that section from the Apostles' Creed, yes, he was buried, but where was his soul? His, his body lays in the grave, what about his soul? And you heard it in the Apostles' Creed. It, it has that statement where it says, he descended into hell. Is that what was happening during this time? Did Jesus die and, and did his soul go to hell for one reason or another? Uh, did his soul suffer more in hell or did he go to hell to, to preach? I think you could do a whole sermon on this, so I'm going to give you my, my answer without giving you a lot more background. But I think it, I will try to help you at least think about this. Jesus gives us a clue as to the state of his soul following his death. If you if you remember, it's not here in this passage, but if you remember, Jesus spoke to the thief who was on the cross, the one thief mocking him and saying, Jesus, if you're the son of God, save yourself and us. And then you have the thief on the other side who chastises that one. And he says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And if you remember, Jesus speaks to that man. He speaks to that man who professed faith in him. And Jesus said, I tell you, this day you will be with me in paradise. Now, Jesus is intending to fortify this man's faith. He wants him to know what comes next. This man, even as he is dying, Jesus' concern is, as you are dying, do not be afraid. I have good news for you. I have good news about what is coming. He's actually telling this man, this crucifixion is the worst thing that will ever happen to you. He need no longer be afraid because even this very day, he will be in paradise along with Jesus. So Jesus is going to paradise, not hell. And we know that because this criminal did not go to hell. He went to paradise on the same day as Jesus. So what do we mean when we say that Jesus descended into hell? I want to suggest to you, without going into the history of the language, that quite simply, when we confess that Jesus descended into hell, we mean what Herman Bovink says. I'll give you this quote from him. He says, Christ bore the wrath of God and tasted the spiritual death of his abandonment also in his soul. Jesus descended into hell. 
He tasted the spiritual death of abandonment even in his very soul. He suffered and died. And in that he experienced the very thing that our sins call for. The very thing that ought to await us apart from Jesus. The suffering of hell's torments. You know, each of us, I feel confident saying this in this room, that each of us is a sinner. And each of us, apart from Christ, will experience the hell of torment. And I want to remind you today that the only hope you have in this life is the testimony of Jesus. That moments before he died, he said, it is finished. So that you would never have to know this suffering for yourself. Third today, we come to the fundamental fact and the reason we celebrate and the reason why all of our songs today have been so joyful because Christ rose again. Mary finds the tomb empty. You can see that the entrance is not a large entrance. Sometimes we picture a, 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 a yawning cave opening and yet they have to stoop to go inside. It's such a small opening that they have to crouch to go in. Um, Mary finds the tomb empty. Peter and John find the tomb empty. The disciples find the tomb empty. Jesus appears to Mary. He speaks to Mary. She sees him. She recognizes him. And then he says those words, I'm ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. And then Mary, Mary preaches the gospel to the disciples. She says, I have seen the Lord. Maybe the simplest gospel presentation anyone ever gave. <laughs> I have seen the Lord. What else could you say? There's, there's not flowery language here. It's not, it's not a brilliant example of oratory. It is not a, 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 a showing off rhetorical skills. Instead, if anything, it seems like the understatement of the century. I saw him. I saw him. I laid eyes on him. He, he physically was there. The, the light reflected off of him, backed into my eyes. He stood there in front of me, as real as you, as real as me. He is risen. He's risen. How do you say that? How does Mary find the words? Well, she doesn't really. She just, without eloquence at all, just says it. That's all you can do. And, and just so we're clear... This deserves more than the third point of a sermon. Uh, it deserves songs upon songs. It deserves books and volumes. It deserves endless praises and nonstop rejoicing from us. There is no danger of overstating the goodness of this news that Mary is reporting to the disciples. And by the way, that's what heaven is, right? Heaven is this praise happening, and this praise will happen. But here's the thing. We are finite people. And so the praise happens now, but it has to go on forever because anything less than that would be just wrong. We get a glimpse of this in, in Revelation 5 where, where we see that the, the place between the throne and the four living creatures where we see the lamb standing as though it had been slain and the living creatures cry out in worship of the, the risen Christ, worthy, you're worthy, you were slain, you ransomed your people, but now you live. Jesus, you're worthy. That's really what this truth deserves. In fact, as I was working on this, I kept going, no, don't say that. 
don't say that. It's not good enough. It's not good enough. I kept going over this thinking, no, it's something better. This needs to be better. And here, come the re- here comes the reality of preaching. Preaching is weird, right? It's got so many limitations because it's just talking. All I'm doing is telling you things that you need to know. I can say what's true, but here's the thing. I can't make your hearts sing. I can say what happened. I can't move your heart the way that you should be by this. And so that means that preaching takes faith. Because I have to just declare this to you all in faith this morning and leave the results to God that he's going to do something within you more than just the words bouncing off the walls of this place. To be honest, every way I can think of saying this feels so inadequate to simply say, Christ is risen. How am I doing this truth justice? And yet as a minister, I have to trust that however inadequate it feels to pronounce this truth, to speak these words, however weak these words sound on my own, I have to trust that God would be pleased to use it, that he would place it upon your heart, that through the Spirit that he would give you a sense of how incredible this is to say, that he would give you a sense of the greatness of God for this, that he would give you words of praise that would at least on some level match the gravity of what he is saying here. He is risen. He is is risen. He didn't remain in the grave. He, he, He did not remain buried. After these things, after the nightmare, after the horror... He was buried, and now he is risen. And now, after these things, the throng in heaven sings, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And now we sing, Up from the grave he arose. Now we sing, Jesus Christ is risen today. And it's a truth that echoes through the universe even now. It it makes a difference even today. It matters even today. It matters tomorrow too. It matters because there is a gigantic future dimension to what we're talking about here. It matters because one day like Jesus, you will suffer and die. One day you will close your eyes for the last time. One day your body will lay cold in the ground like his did. Are you prepared for that day? Have you confronted that truth for yourself that that you will die? We're meant to behold the death of Jesus and think about our own death. This is what the writers of Scripture do. They see Jesus' death and they think of their own death. That's exactly what Paul does with Jesus' resurrection in Romans chapter 8. Think of what Paul says here. In Romans 8.11, he says, If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Jesus Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So Paul is backward looking, right? He's doing the same thing we're doing today. He's thinking about the death of Jesus. And he's thinking about his own future death. And then he's thinking about what that means once we die. He's saying, after these things, this happened, and because this happened, that will happen. What he's saying is, this is relevant. He's saying that this is, this is present 
and that this matters right now. He was buried, and so he was raised, and so you will be raised by his Spirit. Talking to us even today, Paul says, set your eyes on that body in Jesus' tomb. Meditate upon his death. Think of that body lying there, motionless, physical, real, cold to the touch. One day that will be you. See your death in his death, because it is coming. Don't dispassionately listen to these things. This is not an interesting discussion of history. He went through all of this for a reason, not to be studied, but to be embraced. He came because he knew that after these things, there would be men and women and boys and girls who would be born. And they would not have peace with God. And they would need more than a history lesson. They would need a savior. This is an opportunity for you to reflect. Have you considered your own death? Well and good, but do you have peace with God? Have you come to Christ and placed your hope in him? Have you stopped hoping in your religiosity, in your, your good works, your good intentions, your, your charitable acts, your, your family history, whatever it is? Have you, have you stopped putting your hope there in yourself? The Bible tells us there is no other way to have hope or peace or forgiveness than through Jesus Christ alone. There, there is no other way. The, the Spirit raised Jesus up. And if you're a believer in Christ, the promise is given. You have the same Spirit within you that raised Jesus up. And the promise is there. Trust in Him. Stop trusting in yourself. And that same Spirit will one day raise up your mortal body. That is hope. After these things, something better is coming. After these things, we will be raised up. After these things, we will see him face to face. Right now, we don't. Right now, we see like we're looking through a dark glass or a dirty window or through a veil. But there's coming a day where the faith goes from being faith to being actual sight. The transition takes place. And when that happens, there will be no more darkness. And he will wipe every tear from our eyes after these things. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, what can we say to you or of you that can do justice to this reality that you were raised up, that you defeated death, that you could not be held by death's strong bands. We pray that your resurrection would be ever before us. We pray that you would steal away from us any fear of our own death. Because you were raised up after these things, we too will be raised up after these things. Thank you for this precious gift. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.